Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. For October 2018's episode of our show, we celebrate this warm and welcoming autumn here in Paris with two chefs and a master of Austrian wine. The lead-in topic with Chef Avi Shapiro of Roya in New Haven, Connecticut, and his longtime friend and colleague, Chef Indra Carrillo of La Condesa here in Paris, is the Prasad Project. The Prasad Project is a philanthropic expression of the city yoga path. P-R-A-S-A-D, Prasad, Philanthropic Relief, Altruistic Service, and Development, is a not-for-profit organization committed to improving the quality of life of economically disadvantaged people around the world. Its primary philosophy is one of self-reliance. The Prasad Project's outreach programs help people to achieve lives of self-reliance and dignity by offering assistance in health, education, and sustainable community development in India, dental care in the United States, and eye care in Mexico. The word Prasad originally comes from the Sanskrit. This is something that the Colombian-born Avi and the Mexican-born Indra will explain more to us about during our interview in the first half of the show. We sat down with the both of them together at Indra's delightful new restaurant La Condesa in the Sopi district, that's short for South Pigalle, in the 9th arrondissement of Paris. Chef Carrillo was named as one of Paris's top young chefs last year, and between the two of them, Avi and Indra have worked in such exotic places as India and Mexico City, as well as mythical culinary lands like Lyon and Paris. For the second half of our show, get ready for a masterclass with the renowned Willy Klinger of the Austrian Wine Board. Austrian wines offer much more than Grüne Weltliner, delicious as it may be. In fact, at an Austrian wine tasting here in Paris, I was frankly surprised and delighted to discover their red wines. Crisp, light, and elegant, these cold climate reds can stand up to the best and are well worth discovering, especially while they still maintain their very accessible price points. So have a listen as Willie Klinger, this masterful wine professional, discusses everything from Grüne Weltliner to Wolfgang Puck, and lots of Austrian wines in between. So sit back, pour yourself a glass of whatever is chilled, or whatever you've been tempted to open thus far but have been waiting for just the right moment, and relax into this international episode of Paris Good Food and Wine, where all culinary roads seem to lead to Paris. I'm Paige Donner. Thank you for joining us today on Paris, Good Food and Wine. Season 5 of Paris, Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. This episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris food and wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. We're here at La Condesa in Paris and it is your restaurant. So if you could just say a couple words about who you are and your this beautiful restaurant you've just opened. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we're here at La Condesa restaurant in Paris. I'm Indra Carrillo, uh, the chef owner uh, of the restaurant. And I'm hosting today Avi Shapiro from Roya 
in Connecticut for a four-hands dinner that is going to happen on Friday the 6th and Saturday the 7th of July. And we are offering this dinner for the Prasad Project. And that is a humanitarian organization that supports people around the world. Yes. And my name is Avi Shapiro, and I'm from Bogota, Colombia. And I'm very grateful that Indra invited me for a really good reason to Paris so I can cook here. And as Indra said, it is to benefit the Prasad Project, which is a not-for-profit organization that it holds a special uh, consultative status with the United Nations Economic and Social uh, Council. So it does amazing work. And it helps people to achieve life of self-reliance and dignity uh, by offering programs of health, education, and sustainable community development in India, dental care in the United States, and free eye surgeries in Mexico. So really the goal of each Prasad initiative is to help people to help themselves, their community, and their environment. And every year thousands of people benefit directly from Prasad Humanitarians' work. And Indra and I had the benefit of getting to know one another by offering our services in in the non-for-profit sector, in the non-for-profit world. And Prasad was one of the ways that we connected, which is the charitable arm of the City Yoga Path. And um, we found an incredible passion for food together. Also, both Latin Americans, both have uh, worked in France, both have traveled extensively eating together. We've eaten in a lot of places together and cooked in several places together, including India, where we spent time together. So we figured that a good way to celebrate our relationship was a great excuse for me to come to Paris and then to offer, uh, in form of gratitude and honoring our our connection, offering 10% of the proceeds to the Prasad Project. And so there's going to be elements in the menu that are inspired by our travels, our time together. So there's going to be Indian influence. There's going to be Mexican influence. There's going to be definitely Italian influences and French, of course. So very exciting. You know, the word prasad has so much meaning uh, behind it. It's almost kind of like a, a diamond in that it has so many facets. And I personally am very familiar with the Siddha um, Foundation. I, I once visited the, the South Fallsburg location. This was, I was thinking about it as I was coming over here for this interview today. I was thinking, gosh, was that 20 years ago? <laughs> and it actually was. It was in 1998. So it was 20 years ago. But I remember, I remember that word prasad because I know it comes from Hindu, right? Sanskrit, Sanskrit, yes, thank you. Um, and it, it it means like an offering, but it also means an offering in the form often of food, no? C- can you guys just say a couple words about the the meaning of that of that word for you? Yeah, I think I think the, the word prasad is actually yeah, a very meaningful uh, word, and it reminds us, I think, Abby and myself, about the, the gift of nurturing people. That it's something I think very special. And that we had, uh, I had also the opportunity to to participate when I was a teenager in Mexico, uh, participating in some of the programs that were held in in, in Mexico, um, and then also in India, in Maharashtra state, when I was uh, spending some 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 months. So I remember going to some of the communities nearby and 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 going to 
to to support them where there was the health uh, part but it was also the part of uh, nurturing people and yeah giving delicious food to to, to the people in, in the local communities so yeah it's a very very special opportunity and and a very special word yeah i would uh, add as well that uh, also from the scriptural perspective it comes to the gift that the guru imparts to the disciple and within that gift you have the recognize the the inherent teaching or when the the gift comes to you it's contains the grace of the of the teacher and the recognition of that grace puts you in touch with your own greatness your uh the awareness of oneself which is in my experience incredibly transformative so um one of the reasons why i like the the word because it is with food there's the relation that oftentimes when you go to the temples in india you receive prasad which is meant to be blessed by the deity that you're visiting in that temple but it's the inherent power of the blessing in that gift and oftentimes it is with food and it can be a flower it can be a cloth it can be whatever form the gift takes but it is the inherent transforming transformative power in that that gift that i think is for me definitely the most valuable thing and i think that in relation to why i like the way the prasad project has brought that into their own organization is making people self-reliant so i think that that's the beauty of the the power of those teachings or the, or that grace is that you still need to put your effort uh, so i think that that word has so much meaning in food for me because when i'm cooking i do think of the gift that we're offering to people and um it is pretty i think the power of food for me since i was a kid to see how it brings people together how it transforms people used in the right way and in the right way it can be so beneficial medicinal even in some uh, cases and yet if you if you don't use it appropriately it can also be pretty detrimental so i think food in that sense has for me has been a true gift because it has allowed me to travel meet so many people learn so much So thank you for asking that question because it's it's a beautiful entry point. Well, and you gave me right there a really wonderful launching pad for for an, uh, the next direction which is how you guys came together because I suppose in a way food has brought you together during your professional careers. And I know that you now have your restaurant, as we mentioned a moment ago, in New Haven, Connecticut. And Indra, you've chosen to remain here in, in Paris after doing quite a bit of a, more or less a worldwide stint, but also doing quite a lot of your professional career in pedigreed kitchens here in Paris. But do you want to just talk a little bit about how you guys first met and, you know, why you're doing this, as they say, quatre mains, four, four hands dinner this evening? And, and then also, if that's not, you know, too much, I don't want to pack too many questions into one thing. But, you know, also maybe if you'd want to mention just a couple of the 
of the kitchens you've worked in, and then the same questions will be for you too, Avi. Okay, great. Yes. So I first met Avi. We met first in in upstate New York. After I spent almost uh, yeah like four months uh, in in the center of this cultural organization in India, and I've heard great things about Avi and about his skills as a chef and as a as a manager. So I was invited to to go join his team and and cook uh, in the in the upstate New York location. So before that, I also uh, offered my services at the location in in Mexico City of Sida Yoga. Uh, for almost seven years, when I was uh, around 12 years old, on the afternoons and uh, on the weekends, so that's where I, I first encountered my first mentor, uh, Eduardo Perez, who who taught me so much about uh, food, about how to work, about a broader vision of of food as well, because we were also cooking Mexican food, but uh, a lot of international food as well. So I had a a, a very open-minded kind of. Uh, way to what the cuisine can be and then I, I got invited to the, to the US and met Abby and he kind of uh, he is one of my, my mentors and has supported me throughout uh, all my career and with his friendship but also with his uh, advices and, uh, and and help so it's been very meaningful and being here it's yeah as we said before a way of celebrating uh, all of this uh, all of these encounters yeah so Continuing with what Indra was saying, it brought us together working for the non-for-profit organization. Indra was very young, <laughs> and so was I. But uh, uh, I love that he his curiosity was something that immediately struck a chord in me. Uh, he was nonstop. I mean, the curiosity. He was looking for a school at the time. And uh, I had mentioned that I had gone to Culinary Institute of America as part of my profession. I had started in working in Bogota, Colombia with Harry Sasson, a very well-known chef there. And then I moved to France and I tried to apply to schools here at the time. And I could not really find a school that I was really drawn to. And I had visited CIA. So I, I did, I had gone to CIA, but then several years later when I met Indra, I had come across the program in Paul Bocuse. And I remember Indra was looking at Paul Bocuse and various other universities. And I thought that Paul Bocuse had really the, the best opportunity at the time. But back to his curiosity, he was so eager in the kitchen. Um, we would joke around a lot in the kitchen. And the kitchen was very big and we had uh, hoses, water hoses. And in the summer, it would get so hot. So we would spray each other and other people uh and indra would always get me and he would run away as i was trying to get him so he was he was ahead of of me he was he was fast so i had to really trick him one time to to get him but in in all of that it was, there was a lot of playfulness and there was a lot of um i love the kind of question and inquire inquisitive mind that that indra had or has and uh, while I was very fortunate to really cultivate our friendship, it's interesting that it's now after his incredible uh, stints in various great restaurants that now I get to come to Paris and, and, and <laughs> reap the fruits of his hard work and learn myself now. Uh, so that's, uh, it's funny how the, there's a, a full circle in that sense. Uh, back to my, how I started was in the kitchens in Colombia. I didn't know if I wanted to cook, and my mom asked me a very 
important question. She said, or maybe gave me some some good advice. She said, why don't you go and work in a kitchen for six months, see if you like it. And I was in between law and cooking, and thank God I chose cooking. Not, not to let the lawyers do their thing, but uh, I spent six months in a restaurant, and I loved it, and I went and trailed a lawyer for one day, and that was enough. Uh, I'm glad that I chose cooking. Um, and so I did my apprenticeship with <laughs> with uh, Pierre Orsi in Lyon, who gave me great, strong basics, and also here at Le Dôme in Paris. And then after that, I went to culinary school, and I went to work for Paul Bertoli in Oakland, California. He had left Chez Panisse and was the chef at Oliveto, and I had the good fortune of having Mike Tusk, who's currently the, the chef at Quinn's in San Francisco, who was the chef de cuisine at that time. So that group and that experience was very formative because everybody who was there at the time was really into it. So everybody would come with, what's the new cookbook? And, oh, did you try this new restaurant? Or So there, it was an incredibly nurturing place. And that it was very rich formation. I went to London after that at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, working for Howell Jones, and we got the Michelin star, and it was the hardest work I've done probably after my own opening because <laughs> openings are unbelievable. And and then I had also a good fortune of traveling, working at the ABAC in uh, in Barcelona. And, and at the end, I opened uh, Roya in New Haven, which is right next to Yale University. We transform a 1920s, actually 1912 uh, space, brought it back to what it was originally. And we serve a f French and Italian-inspired seasonal cuisine. And my wife and I opened it in uh, 2013. And she's, without my wife, this would none of this would happen. She's amazing. And uh, I think she didn't really know what she was getting herself into, which helped, because if she would have known, she probably said no. Um, and she really is the glue for the restaurant. She's the director of operations and... I mean, f so much more than that. And yeah, and so now here we are in Paris at La Condesa, which I highly recommend it to everybody. It's pretty good. <laughs> I came on Tuesday. Food was very good. <laughs> You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Okay, so just the last question, because I know also, too, today's a big day. You both are from South America and happens to be the Uruguay uh, versus France match today for the World Cup, so everyone's pretty excited about that, to watch that. And I know it started about half an hour ago or so, so... 
But just last quick question. So what can people find on, on a menu on any given night here at La Condesa, not too far from the very fashionable Sopi, South Pigal district? It's actually still, it is actually Sopi here, isn't it? Yeah. So here at La Condesa, we offer, we have a 24-seat restaurant and we offer uh, surprise menus that we call Carte Blanche. So basically we have a four or a six course menu that evolves daily or weekly, depending on, on what, what we get from, from the producers from, from the sea. And it's a French cuisine. So it's French cuisine and mixing influences from all these different various experiences that I had. My origins from Mexico, my, my time in, in Enoteca Pinchiorri in Florence, uh, my time in, uh, in Japan with Mr. Okuda or Mr. Murata in Kyoto, uh, in France with Paul Bocuse, with uh, Gianni Caleno, with with other other um, renowned chefs that I had the, the opportunity and the great fortune to work with. So I'm getting inspiration from all these culinary traditions and, and, and travels to propose like a, a journey a journey in, in to, to people's food. So that's what we're aiming today with Avi is uh, also inspiring from our, our different experiences around the world to create this journey of a seven plus or six uh, course menu tonight with a wine pairing. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, I know, Avi, you mentioned that you do French and Italian cuisine, but what kind of things can people expect when they come to see you and your wife in New Haven? Thank you. So the our menu is, we have a great pasta program. We're changing the menu very frequently. You'll have staples on the menu, like the steak frites. You have several pasta dishes also representing the Italian portion of the let's say, of the influence of the restaurant, you can find a lot of work for us is vegetable-driven. We've been focusing a lot of, on vegetables. And so whatever is in season is really what it's inspiring. And then we use techniques, traditional old French techniques or traditional Italian techniques, and just kind of convert whatever is in the bounty of New England. We have great relationships with local farms. In fact, we have one in particular who was the first female graduate of the Yale Forestry School. It's one woman and 62 men in the class. And she was the first graduate and she grows vegetables uh, strictly for us. We develop a great relationship with her and her family and her farm. And so in the wintertime, we have the good fortune of choosing certain seeds that we want to work with and so forth and so on. So, for example, we've been working for almost for three years, Puntarella, which is a favorite chicory of mine, again, from the Italian uh, tradition, so sort of inspired by. And after three years, we were able to get it to work. So now we're utilizing it in the menu quite frequently. And it, sometimes it's not a lot of people know about this, so it gives us the opportunity to really connect to the, with the guest and introduce him to something different. So there's some staples that remain on the menu, like our octopus is really well known. Uh, our pastas are, are very well known. You have a steak frit or you have a chicken liver mousse. So you have elements or a carpaccio di funghi, which are elements from both traditions. And then whatever is in the season that inspire us to change the menu, we're changing the menu pretty much every three weeks. So it gives us a lot of creative play and also... We have a lot of repeat guests, so then also they don't get tired of the menu all the time. 
Well, I guess as we say, that's that's a wrap. That I feel like I went on a culinary worldwide journey with the both of you there, and I want to thank you both so very much for taking the time out of your extremely busy schedule to speak to Paris Good Food and Wine. Thank you, Indra. Thank you, Avi. Thank you very much for the invitation, and thank you for your visit. It's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for bringing us all together. This is great. We look forward to welcoming you for dinner. Cheers. I'm Paige Donner. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. The show is produced and broadcast from Paris, France. It's Paris's first ever homegrown English language radio show about food and wine. IoT Shipping. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Next up, we hear from one of the world's foremost champions of Austrian wines, Willy Klinger. So, Willie Klinger, it's really wonderful of you to be visiting here in Paris from your native Austria. And we're here at the Petit Palais, this kind of secret little cafe in the back, but it's not so secret. It's just that people don't think of it when they think of the Petit Palais, but it's a wonderful setting for us to meet and to talk more about Austrian wines. Now, I got my first really big introduction to Austrian wines several months ago when you put on that that tasting, which was just an outstanding tasting and presentation about Austrian wines. I had a couple of uh, great points to take away with me. But first, just introduce us as to what you do with the Austrian wine board and how, and actually even what that is. Well, we are a very small country nowadays. We used to be a big empire. And it was not easy for Austria to accept that we are... A very cozy, nice country, successful economy, great living, but we are not among uh, the most important nations when it comes to uh, size, power, and uh, what counts. The mindset, though, of Austria is still there uh, to, to think the world is about the Russians, the Americans, the Chinese, and us Austrians, you know? <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's, it's a small country. It is wine-wise a cool climate uh, wine country uh, with two-thirds of white and only one-third of red. When I started in wine business something like 30 years ago, it was 85 white and 15 red only. So we are cool climate, fresh wines with good acidity and one signature grape that stands out that's a third of all the vineyards is planted with Grüner Weltliner. So now, can you imagine, Grüner Weltliner, the Umlaut, Ü, yeah? <laughs> For France, not a problem, you know? But France is not the market. When we started marketing Grüner Weltliner in America something like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was an Austrian sommelier, uh, Alexander Algas, who worked at Daniel uh, in New York, and then Jean-Georges, 
and then at the Danube that no longer exists with Poulet. And he calls himself Alexander the Grape. <laughs> and he would go from table to table to introduce Grüner Weltliner, which was a very fancy and, and odd category of wine. And he would ask the American customers, would say, what do you want to drink today? Red, white or green? And people, what do you mean by green? I said, hey, you haven't had Gruner, Grunewaldlina. And so that's how it started in New York, in San Francisco, a little bit L.A., on the coasts, both coasts. And 25 years later, America is, for example, our third best uh, export market already. It's Germany. Uh, of course, neighboring Germany is a big importing market and also for Austrian wine. And Switzerland is also very, very our neighbors. But then it's America already, you know. So we are sitting here in Paris. This is a little bit odd, isn't it? This is, uh, we are. We did this tasting in Paris, which we do in five, six years, every five, six years only, because everybody can imagine that France is not the main goal of Austrian wines. But France has a fantastic restaurant scene, Paris especially, with an international crowd. So... When some of the restaurants, I'm not talking of the bistros that have uh, this French culture and French, France has a lot to offer, there's no necessity of foreign wines. But when some of the great wine lists of Paris, they list Austrian wines because they list all the great wines in the world. And to be part of it is very important. It's a shopping window. It's, 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 it's uh, one situation was there was a buyers from Japan sitting in La Strance, which is a three-star restaurant with, uh, with French partners. And the sommelier blindly gave them a Grüne Valina from Austria. They thought it was Alsace and so on. This is great for us, you know. And that's why we are here from time to time. And I also met you. At this tasting, an American podcaster sitting in Paris since eight years, as I heard, and now we meet here for a podcast for for yeah global audience with an American focus. Isn't the world great today? <laughs> no, you're right. That's a lot of communication and a lot of uh, well, really more communication, I guess, than marketing on your part. Oh, what what is your exact title? Just for our listeners, what's your exact title with the board? You know, I come out of the wine business. So I was selling wine, I was importing wine, I was running an Austrian co-op winery, Domain Wachau, selling their wines. Then for six years, I was the export director of m maybe the most famous winery in Italy, Gaia. So I was the, the Angelo Gaia's export man, touring around, spending a month a year in America. And now I'm the head of the Austrian wine marketing board. So that means it's a little bit like a, a racehorse with a plow. <laughs> I cannot sell anymore, you know? It's, it's uh, Austrian wine is a fantastic category, but I cannot sell. I'm something like the tourist board for, uh, for Oregon or for America. Yeah? So I'm the, the wine man of Austria promoting Austrian wines domestically and abroad. So we organize all the trade fairs. We publish all the educational material, the brochures. We do the market research for the wineries because, you know, our wine country has 14,000 winemakers on, on something like uh, 120,000 acres only. So we are only a third of Bordeaux and have 14,000 winemakers, tiny winemakers, family businesses. 
So they need help in promoting because they cannot behave like the big brands like Kendall Jackson or Gallo or Penfolds. So we do the promotional work for the whole category of Austrian wines globally. And I'm the managing director. I have an agency of 23, 25 people in Austria sitting in Vienna in an office in Vienna. And we are funded by the wine sectors. 1.1 cent for every liter harvest that goes to us and 1.1 cent for every liter commercialized. So we have 2.2 cents, euro cents per liter as the contribution for marketing of the category, generic category of Austrian wine. This is our budget, 9 million a year. It's not so bad. And then we do our best to get people hooked on our wines. You know, really, the way you're describing it, so I don't want to draw too many parallels to France, but France is kind of my point of reference. The way you're describing it, it sounds like Austrian wine is a little bit more like Burgundy, like the way we think of Burgundy in the sense of, you know, small producers, families, people who are living by the fruit of their hard work, quite literally. So I can see how your job, as we say, is cut out for you because that's a lot of, um, that's a lot of support then that, that they would need, that they wouldn't necessarily have the budget for themselves, certainly. Now, you mentioned a moment ago, you mentioned Grüne Weltliner, which even for me is difficult to say. And I have to say, though, too, that that's probably the one varietal that I have heard of from Austrian wines. But what I learned at your tasting, I learned a lot of things at your tasting a, f- a few months ago, but one of the things I learned is that you actually have a huge amount of diversity, a huge amount of diversity. Can you just kind of, I mean, without actually listing all of them, because I know that would be, you know, it, it's not, we need a lot more time for that. But I mean, if you could just kind of maybe allude to a couple of the distinctive regions and then which of the varietals are known for them. Yeah, I, I first talk about white wines because it's two-thirds uh, of our production and mm-hmm. the Grüne Veltliner in the lead. You have uh, the most significant regions along the Danube, Wachau, Kremstal, Kamptal. These are the most famous region, Weinviertel and uh, Wagram and Treisental. Even Vienna itself, the capital, has a few hectares of Grüne Veltliner. Then we produce Riesling. We are one of the great, great quality Riesling producers, only dry. Think of Austrian Riesling. No big problem, always dry. You know, Germany, Oregon can be off dry and dry. So our reasoning is always dry. We do, of course, Sauvignon Blanc in the southernmost province that we have. This is Styria, Steiermark as the German word. So we have one of the great Sauvignon Blanc terroirs in the world. And twice in a row, we now won the Denis du Bourdieu trophy for the best Sauvignon of the show of Thousands of Sauvignons tasted by the Concours Mondial du Sauvignon Blanc. So I think there's something coming from Steiermark and everybody who has been there is so beautiful, hilly, steep uh, slopes, beautiful. And uh, Vienna itself has a very significant wine, the Gemischter Satz, as we call it, which means field blend. means not a monovarietal, but several varieties growing in one wine um, area, in one vineyard harvested together, vinified together, and bottled together. That's the Gemischter Satz from Vienna. Several other local grape varieties. We do Chardonnay, but this is not a big news for America. You have much more of a good Chardonnay to sell. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Be sure to check out our website at parisfoodandwine.net. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. Going to the tasting in Paris, you might have tasted some extremely interesting reds, didn't you? And this is quite new for Austria because uh, we didn't know so much about red wine uh, 40 years ago. It's a new development. And we thought we had to learn from the French in the mid-80s. We planted Cabernet and Merlot like everybody in the world. And then we learned how to make red wine, malolactic fermentation, and barrique aging, and everything like this. And we, what did we find out? We found out that the most interesting red wines came from our local grape varieties, which is Zweigel, Blaufränkisch, and St. Laurent. So, pronunciation problem, huh? But we get a foot in the door, even in America. Uh, when I did a tasting of Austrian red wines, the first tasting of Austrian reds in California, something like two years ago, we were totally overbooked. And you know why? Because California itself has a revolution going on. This is no longer only the, 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 the land of the big, bold and alcohol-rich wines, but the new California, and I quote the book of uh, John Bonnet, quotes wineries that do much more terroir-orientated wines with lower alcohol, a little bit cooler regions. And this was the most important and interesting development that American journalists and sommeliers were so keen of, of, of discovering these Austrian cool climate reds, especially Blaufränkisch, which is uh, a grape called Kek Frankosch in Hungary or Lemberger in Germany. It's the same grape. And this is something that really was a new development because we couldn't sell so much uh, red wine in America or in countries that are most known for great reds, reds like France or even Italy. Now they are beginning to also, apart from Grenovellina and Riesling on Sauvignon from Austria, they also are interested in the reds. And this was also visible in the famous tasting at the Plaza Athenee, one of the high-end addresses in, 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 in Paris, isn't it? You're absolutely right. That was my big takeaway from that tasting. After you did the presentation, you and your team, I had expected to be tasting really much just whites, and I ended up tasting pretty much just reds <laughs> because I was just so fascinated by them. And you're right, that cool climate, you know, again, like I don't want to draw comparisons because every terroir is distinct and its own personality. But I think that that's another reason, too, why Burgundy has shot up recently. And I mean, especially in the last I mean, it's always been very, very beloved, but you know, on an international buying scale in the last several years because people are really being drawn to these cool climate reds. There's a, a de you know, a finesse, a delicacy to them. And that's what I tasted in, in, the, in the reds that I tasted at, at your tasting. What about for, you know, any kind of a market share? Now that you have in your, in your position, you have to represent both sides. And you've now also explained that actually the red producers are what, a, th a, a third? A third. So, um, how do you, how do you allocate communications resources and, um, and even like research and going forward? How are you going to promote your reds more? <laughs> 
uh, you know, there's one issue that uh, helps a lot. This is the region itself. The regions itself, uh, the red is more produced in the east of the country. There's a federal state of Austria called Burgenland. That's the easternmost part. It goes along the Hungarian border. And be- until World War One, this Burgenland wasn't part of Austria. You know, we had a monarchy of two crowns of uh, Austria and Hungary, and the emperor was the Austrian. But Burgenland believed to the crown of Hungary, and it was the German-speaking part of Western Hungary. And only in 1921, with the treaties of Versailles and Trianon and uh, Saint-Germain, this came to Austria. So Hungary lost the war, Austria lost the war, so we lost our monarchy, we lost our empire. The, what was remaining was today's Austria. But Hungary, also losers, had to give to the rest of Austria the German-speaking part of West Hungary. And this is where we have the red wines of Austria now, with a few exceptions. And so it's Burgenland. And Burgenland, uh, our friends from Burgenland, uh, they uh, promote their own wines also heavily in America. Uh, Christian Sechmeister, my colleague from the wine Burgenland, is often in America. And they have great success promoting their Burgenland wines, red As uh, the rest of Austria, Niederösterreich, Wachau and, and Steiermark and Kremstal, Kamptal, they are very successful with the whites. So we put them on the map and this is the new development. Of course, it started of a domestic need. We needed more red wine because we imported so much red wine when we had only 15%. And we thought, uh, yeah, the Chianti and the Rioja and, uh, you know, Burgundy is a, is a hard deal nowadays because it's, the prices are going up. This is something I, I have to mention also. The interest for Austrian wines in general, but also for Austrian reds, comes also from the fact that some of the great wines to drink are out of our reach nowadays. And I can tell you, my private cell is full of wines from all over the world. I used to buy big Bordeaux's and I used to buy uh, Burgundy and Rhone and so on. But have you checked the prices? If you want something really uh, above Premier Cru, if you want to buy a Grand Cru in Burgundy, uh, it, it's, it's 500 is nothing nowadays. And this is something where I can say, I think uh, there's not much Austrian wine sold in retail above $100. Yeah? Most excellent Austrian wines are in, uh, that are world-class and that you could compare with some great Burgundies, at least at the Premier Cru level. And Austrian prices in a retail shop in, in America would be something like 30 50 60 and then you have world class. We cannot compete in the below 10 because we are handcrafted and we cannot uh, deliver wines like Fusion or something like uh, from South America or from these big uh, yield uh, operations. But when it comes to real excellence and great wine that you and, and I would like, like to drink, I think we are a great option. Well, people always love to be the first to know what the next, the next, you know, great value and, but great quality is. I mean, we, that's, that's, to me, that's why people actually read things like wine enthusiasts and wine spectators because we want to know, you know, what can we get that's of the same quality as a 500 euro bottle of wine, but you know, we're going to pay like 50. <laughs> so thank you for that tip. That's, that's really, uh, that's very useful. Now, um, where I come from, uh, 
California, we had, and I believe maybe you you know him, um, you know, a very famous chef, uh, Wolfgang Puck, who's Austrian. And we also had, of course, a very famous governor who's also Austrian, <laughs> Arnold. But um, has Chef Puck been able to put some Austrian wines on his menus? Or? You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. You know what is very interesting? I'm very good friend with Wolfgang Park. I, 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 I don't know uh, the great achieving politician Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know him, of course, but not personally. Uh, but I know Wolfgang Park very well. And but when I got to know him, in something like 1996, he didn't have very much Austrian wine on his lists because he uh, went to Paris first and to uh, also to southern France to to learn in the maybe 70s. And then he came to uh, California and he started working in California as a chef and then he made uh, worked up his way. He didn't uh, imagine that Austrian wine would become so popular, so he had no reason to, 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 to be a missionary, uh, to be a, an ambassador of Austrian wine, because he thought this was the farmer's wine. He, he, he knew in Carinthia where he comes from, he doesn't come from a wine country, although Carinthia has 200 hectares now. <laughs> but the South, uh, uh, so he came to uh, America in a time when Austrian wine was nothing that was exported on a higher level. This is also a little bit the case because of the two world wars. Uh, every market that we had in the monarchy before World War One was gone after that. Yeah. So Wolfgang was so surprised to see that after '85 and uh, all these crises in the, in the European wine markets, there was the wine scandal in Italy, there was the wine scandal in Austria, there was a wine scandal in. Alto Adige, this was a very terrible phase. But the, the reinvention of Austrian wine after 85 led to something that we often refer to as the Austrian wine miracle. And if you go to three-star restaurants in, in, in America today, like La Bernardin, or if you go to very high-end restaurants all over the world, the chance is high that you find not one Austrian wine, but a nice selection of Austrian wines. This is something totally new. Now we're discussing red wines of Austria. You know how it started? It started with one man that is no longer with us because he, he died at 49. Uh, but his son goes on and his name is Kracher. Louis Kracher. He's a sweet wine producer. And this is a category that we didn't mention so far of Austrian wine because at the Burgenland... Uh, eastern point of Austria, there's this lake, a steppe lake that's only one uh, yard deep, 90 centimeter, a meter. Even Willy Klinger can walk through, <laughs> and uh, and I'm not very tall, yeah. So this is an area where we have fantastic conditions for Botrytis, which is the noble rot that produces this extremely concentrated, sweet, honey-style uh, sweet wines that are so precious. And Luis Kracher was the first who systematically went to America, knocked on every door, made friends with some of the great chefs and sommeliers, and put his wines on the map. And he was the first Austrian wine 
to get between 95 and 99 points in Wine Spectator and Wine Advocate of Robert Parker. So, and he took, he was so generous. He took us dry wine producers from Wachau and, and Kremstal Kampta, even Styria, with him. And so we were a band of something like, at that time, maybe 25, 30 producers touring around the United States. We found two importers. One is still active, Terry Thies. The other was uh, Vin Divino from Chicago. Two pioneers who really focused on Austrian wine. And I remember it was maybe in 1997, we were doing an Austrian tasting at the World Trade Center at the 108th floor, which was the last floor. It was one above windows on the world. There was a place called Wild Blue. And we did an Austrian tasting. And then we came down a little bit over the top after so many wines. And we went to this terrace on the 107th to, to look down the Hudson River. And while we walked this this um, this corridor, there was uh, an upright piano. I opened it and I play and sing uh, New York, New York. <laughs> And we were so fascinated. It was such a, a new, you know, from so hillbillies as we were, you know, we are now in New York, you know, and we are in California. We know uh, Wolfgang Park who put it, who put us on the list. We did a tasting in the Spartacus set of the Universal um, uh, uh, Studios where Wolfgang Park ran uh, Meals on Wheels. And we were three wineries and three Austrian chefs among a band of chefs from California and all over the world. And we were the only wine pourers there. This was something, you know. The reception was at the Century City. City. Yeah. It, there we did the reception. You can imagine we did a reception at Century City. For us, this was, you know, we were so, we spoke the language. That, that's, that's quite nice that we were prepared to, to, to communicate. With the Americans, we loved it, and w then I, we did tastings all over uh, some of the more uh, developed states in terms of wine culture. And nowadays we are attacking, uh, and we are going to to Wisconsin and to Minneapolis and to Texas and and, and great wine markets because America has become the leading wine market of the world. And that's something that if we, if we had a tremendous success that every truck driver knows Austrian wine, we couldn't, we couldn't even deliver. So our mission is to just be part of all the great wine lists, have our small section, and our best friends, our natural allies are the sommeliers. We cannot put our wine on the supermarket shelves because nobody would buy them. You need somebody who gives you an advice. So... A sommelier or a specialized retail shop, that's the places where we can sell Austrian wine around the globe. It's only a very small share of the market. We don't want to overwhelm our markets with Austrian wine. We couldn't even. But in order not to sell at entry-level prices, reasonable prices, you pick out the raisins of, uh, of the cake uh, all over the world. And that's a fascinating job that I love to do because I can travel around the world, eat in the best places, sleep in nice hotels, talk to nice people. I have the best job in the world. You know, really, the way you said that, too, with so much charm and, and, um, and, and gestures. But, you know, you're not the first person in the world of wine who has told me they have the best job in the world. There's a lot of good jobs in, in the wine industry. I think you kind of fell into, you, you made your own luck, obviously. Well, you know, that's all really, really interesting perspectives. And that gives us a nice 
like I said, kind of a primer, sort of like, I feel like we've sort of opened the door now, or at least I feel like for myself, I've opened the door for Austrian wines and it's made me want to learn so much more about them. And uh, so I look forward to studying more. And I know that you have a really great website in multiple languages. Just as a thank you and as a sign off, can you tell us how to find your website? The website is very easy to find. It's Austrian wine in one word, dot com, austrianwine.com. And I wanted just to to, uh, repeat that I didn't mean selling Austrian wine is the only great job. Being in wine and food, this is a wonderful world. And I encourage young people to become a chef, to become a a sommelier, to work. It's not an easy job. It's so rewarding. It's, It's just amazing how much international network you get when you are in wine. The only advice that I can give is stay with quality. Don't go to the entry level for Bakchak and so on. Go to really fine wine, not necessarily the very expensive, I, I call them oligarch wines because uh, it has gone nuts, you know. Sometimes uh, bottles can cost over a thousand, and this is not my world. But also, three ninety nine, four ninety nine. this is not my world either. Either, because of America either <laughs> uh, so uh, working for great wine at at prices that uh, once you, you drink a bottle on a great day and then you have to celebrate something uh, you, if you go to a good restaurant and you can approach the hundreds yeah but uh, not necessarily you have to do that you know at 20 30 bucks you have a very great bottle of wine that really gives you a perspective of what great wine can be without paying burgundy prices. And I say that because I love burgundy, really. I do, and I I taste it so much because we imported so much in my previous job. And I go there every second year. I'm there wandering down from Chevreux Chambertin to uh, Vougeot. Beautiful. A little bit of that spirit, you mentioned it, is also in Austria. And uh, if you want to deepen your knowledge of Austrian wine, I invite you to come to Via Vinum, to our uh, wine show in June, because this is also for our listeners. Uh, you can read about wine, you can study wine, you can talk about wine, but the best is traveling, visiting the vineyards, and tasting and enjoying. Thank you so much, Willie. I That is the perfect way to... To say thank you. (laughs) Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible, and especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine and like us on Facebook at Paris Food and Wine.